I met my next guest on a beautiful Wednesday afternoon in the dressing rooms of the Arts Club Theatre's Granville Island stage. This evening also happens to be the opening of The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, the first show of the 2018-2019 season, and also the first show in 45 years without my next guest at the helm. From 1972 to 2017, my guest was managing director of the Arts Club Theatre Company here in Vancouver. Over that time, the company produced 550 theatre works, and Bill Millard has directed 178 of those. His achievements are many. Member of the Order of Canada, he won the Jesse Richardson Award for Career Achievement, the Mayor's Arts Award, and the Herbert Whitaker Award for Distinguished Contribution to Canadian Theatre, just to mention a few. And now, he's Artistic Director Emeritus of the Arts Club Theatre after a successful career, changing the landscape of the Vancouver theatre scene forever. I started the interview with a bit about where he grew up and his father's cannery business. My family uh, was in the fishing business. My grandfather uh, founded the fish cannery. Uh, No, you're not hearing wrong. The phantom power on my recording equipment was acting up that day. But uh, it was um, situated in in, uh, Cyprus, if people know West Vancouver, um, and the area where the cannery uh, was situated it still exists. It's, it's actually a fisheries research place oh, yeah. uh, at, um, at Cyprus. So, um, yeah, it was, um, uh, it, it was isolated um, in, in the 50s growing up there. You know, there was a bus that ran, I don't know, once an hour uh, in the evening. It didn't even get to uh, where we lived. It, it <laughs> stopped at West Bay. Um, so that was a bit of a hike if I, if I was coming home late. Um, but, um, it, it, um, yeah, definitely was unique in, in that way, um, because the city seemed, um, uh, far away. Um, and, um, and my father, of course, and, and remembers when the bridge, bridge wasn't there. Yes. So, um, so yeah, it, uh, it was a great experience growing up there. How did it begin for you? What? Was it always theater? But no, not at all. Um, and as I mentioned, um, you know, growing up uh, in that kind of environment, uh, an interest in the arts um, was not particularly encouraged, or or was even something that you know people talked about. Um, I took piano lessons, and I think one of the you know you you look back at transformative experiences in, in your youth. One of them was being a member of um, the West Vancouver Boys and Girls Band, but also the Kitsilano Boys Band, right. and Arthur Delamont, um, this extraordinary um, teacher, band conductor. Uh, the the band was not associated with a particular school like traditional um, you know youth bands. Uh, it existed on its own. And um, and I enjoyed uh, joined it, uh, you know, when I was quite young. And um, he, uh, Mr. Delmont, uh, asked, you know, did I have any musical inclination? I said, well, I played the piano, or at least tried to play the piano. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and for whatever reason, you know, in choosing an instrument, because I didn't say I wanted to do this, that, or the other, and my brother was, was also uh, joining, and he played the saxophone. Mm. Um, he, um, he had me um, be a percussionist. And I think in the back of his mind, he decided that I would be a potential xylophone player or marimba player or, or that kind of instrument. And he um, featured um, the xylophone as a solo uh, in his concerts. And so when he heard I played the piano, um, for whatever reason, <laughs> uh, I got, and he, you know, he was brilliant. And I think that... Um, in a, in a in a way in regards to music um was was quite uh, influential in me thinking that um music would be something that I might be interested in doing mm-hmm. but however uh, my parents were not interested in that at all as you can imagine <laughs> right. thought I should be you know a lawyer or a doctor or whatever teacher or something mm-hmm. uh, not even necessarily a teacher but um so I went off to university and um studied political science and was very interested in political science and international studies and actually went on an exchange scholarship uh, in my final year. But, um, but prior to that, uh, at school, at the, the West Van High, um, there was a drama teacher. And, um, and there again, you know, not that he was very good um, <laughs> from, from what, you know, I've sort of learned since, but he was a drama teacher and, and nonetheless. And so I did plays. I became interested in plays. And there was a teacher, um, B.G. Holt, and he um, taught social studies. And he took an interest in, in, in you know, what I was doing and what he thought I might do and really encouraged me in um, interest in the arts for whatever reason. Um, and it wasn't certainly clear to me at the time, and, and I was a bit of an outlier uh, in, in that way. So... Um, so when I was at UBC, I, I you know, I, I was part of the, uh, uh, the, the theater club there and, and musical theater, Musk, I did all of that, but I graduated in political science. And in 1965, when I graduated, I went off to this exchange scholarship in Japan, uh, in Tokyo. And while I was there, uh, discovered Bunraku and the classical theater, um, Kabuki and Noah. No. Uh, theater and, and really became very fascinated with um, something that I knew very little about. Mm. And, um, and then I took like a gap year and I went up to London. I had friends who had, who had moved to London after they graduated. And, uh, and, and it was, of course, the mid-60s was a, a, a tremendous era for, um, for British theater. I mean, British theatre has always been incredible, but that was the, the era of uh, Peggy Ashcroft and Laurence Olivier and Ralph Richardson and John Gilgood and, you know, on and on and on. And the National Theatre had just been formed, um, so it was starting up. Um, so there was a huge sort of renaissance um, coming out of, out of this sort of um, well-made play that was so, you know, so prevalent at that time leading up to this kind of... Um, change in the guard, um, you know, um, look back in anger, John Os- Osborne, the playwright. Um, and I was very much um, influenced by that kind of experience. So when I came back to Vancouver, um, originally I thought I would continue my studies, maybe take my master's in political science or go into law, or I was interested in, 
in the international studies. Maybe I'd become a, you know, whatever, uh, you know, work, work in that side of it. Mm-hmm. But however, um, as a kind of fluke, I got involved in a, an actress friend of mine who was auditioning for the National Theatre School of Canada, which is situated in Montreal. And it had only been, it was only three or four years old at that particular time. And, um, and she auditioned, and while I was at the audition, um, uh, the, the person who was doing the audition said, are you interested? And I said, well, I hadn't really thought about it. I don't know much about the National Theatre School. I'm not an actor. Um, I, that, that had been made very clear to me. Um, <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm not sure what, what are you suggesting. He said, well, we have this production course. And um, why don't you apply? And I thought, well, you know, of course, why not? Um, and the, my main interest in, um, in applying was because 1967, of course, what, this is now 66. 1967 is going to be the centennial yeah. and Expo 67 in Montreal. And I thought well, that would be a really cool place to spend, uh, spend a year. So I was accepted into the production course for whatever reason. <laughs> and... Um, and I hated the first year I, because most of the students uh, were younger than myself because, you know, I was now in my early 20s and they were just out of high school uh, in the production course. It was bilingual, uh, or at least co-lingual mm-hmm. in, a, in our classes. So that was fascinating. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Montreal was an extraordinary experience. And uh, that really, those, that, that, you know, leads to people there that were very, very influential in, in guiding me in, in what I might do. Right. And so I, I had another question asking if um, performance was ever on your list. So you did, obviously, at Masak and at the UBC Players Club, but that was short-lived as, uh, well, as an actor. I, I, took, um, I took your basic Theatre 100 as an elective, mm-hmm. uh, and Dorothy Somerset, who, mm-hmm. uh, who ran the course with Joy Coghill, uh, but I got Dorothy Somerset, and um, in an interview at the end of it, uh, she said, uh, "Mr. Millard, are, are you interested in acting?" And I said, "Well, not really. I, you know, I'm maybe more interested in other other aspects of theater." And 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 subsequently, a couple of years later, or the next year, I took a directing course. But um, she said, "Well, you know, you have a very peculiar voice." And I don't think um, you would really uh, be successful. However, she said, uh, Margaret Rutherford, who was a, an actress in her 60s, very well known for doing um, sort of whodunits, uh, an English actress with a very peculiar voice, very distinctive <laughs> voice. She said, well, Mar- Margaret Rutherford became successful when she's 60, so maybe there's a chance for you eventually. <laughs> uh, but no, I didn't, um, I didn't see myself. Um, partly, partly, I think, because I was not... Um, that interested in, I mean, I knew very little about acting or what an actor does. Um, uh, you know, I hadn't, uh, you know, the, going to the theater school was, was years, years after that. Um, that um, I thought it was boring. I thought what actors did was fairly boring. And, and I hadn't seen enough theater to be really, because, uh, you know, I was just growing up in Vancouver, and there was no professional theater until 63. So um, uh, when the Playhouse was formed and then the Arts Club was formed in 64, so really the opportunity to see um, professional actors was very limited. Right. 
So was it directing? Was that an interest to you? Did you find that? Well, I think there's another um, person who really, um, you know, created a, a, a strong um, impression on me, and that was uh, Dr. John Brockington, who at that time wasn't running um, the theater department at UBC, but subsequently when Dorothy uh, Somerset retired, uh, he took over the, as the head. And, and he was a, um, a superb director from, from what I could see, and he conducted the course. And uh, again, he was very inspirational. I think he um, gave me very good marks. Uh, I think out of spite, because I think he thought um, somebody who you know was not committed to theater, um, you know, and there were all these theater geeks, of course, in the course, uh, many of whom went on to have great careers. Um, as actors and others like Ray Ackerman, who ran the Civic Theatre for many, many years. He was, he was a uh, fellow student. Um, and I think he was just fascinated that, you know, that, um, that someone like myself, and I knew him from uh, a couple of years earlier because of my percussion um, abilities. Um, I probably auditioned to be in a production of Henry IV, Part One. Uh, which John Wright was playing um, <laughs> Prince Hal, uh, who then, you know, later on ran the theater department. But um, he, uh, he asked me to be a percussionist on this particular production. Mm. So I saw him, um, you know, working as a director and, and was very impressed and, and really created a, um, you know, a strong impression on me on what a director did. And I thought that would be if I went into theater. Uh, and at that time, I still hadn't you know, really decided or, or thought of it as a career uh, might be something that I would do. So, um, yeah, his influence was, was great in, in, in that way. Mm. Subsequently, um, after I, uh, you know, le- left the theater school and came back to Vancouver and I was a stage manager at the Playhouse, uh, Playhouse Theatre Company, uh, John directed a play. And uh, it was a Neil Simon play, uh, Plaza Suite. And he um, and I learned something watching him direct the piece uh, because he wanted the set to be exactly the way the set was on on Broadway, which of course you couldn't do now without paying you know royalties to the set designer, even if they allowed it. Uh, wanted the actors to do exactly what he remembered, and he had one of those photographic memories of of having seen the production. And I was so... Um, oh, and then he made me sit in the house. I think I probably was the assistant stage manager. I had to sit in the house with a script and mark the laughs. It's comedy, obviously, Neil Simon. And I would mark um, uh, like an A or a big tick for a big <laughs> laugh and a, and, a, and a line if it was a medium laugh and a zero if there was no laugh. And I thought maybe there should be. Or like a snicker. <laughs> And then he would take the lines and turn them into big ticks, like make the laugh, you know, make the joke more right. obvious. Right. And I just thought this is so mechanical, um, but on the other hand, really watching like a technician, really. He was a technician, uh, more than necessarily creative. Um, but he was a wonderful technician as, as a director, very precise um, and that, that, yeah, that, that created a, a strong influence on mm, me. That's fantastic. So maybe that answers my question. After you went to National Theatre School, did you go all the way through the, the program? Yeah, it was, it was only two years of that time. Just two years. Yeah. And then what happened afterwards? Did you, you came back here? 
Yeah, well, then I was offered um, the second year. The first year was hopeless. I, I <laughs> quit a couple of times, but I stayed around because of, of Expo 67. Um, working at the festival during Expo 67 was, was again, an mm. extraordinary experience. Um, seeing all these incredible acts from all over the world, uh, including Laurence Olivier doing, mm. um, doing uh, you know, a, a star turn in... in uh, in one of the Shakespeare plays, but um, I was offered three jobs as a stage manager or assistant stage manager. Um, one was in Montreal in a in a new company just that had just been formed, Centaur Theatre, which still still is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other was at the Manitoba Theatre Centre, and the other was in Vancouver, the Playhouse. And I really didn't want to spend another winter uh, <laughs> in Montreal, or for that matter, Winnipeg. Uh, so I came back to Vancouver, mm-hmm. and um, I don't think I was particularly homesick, but it it sounded like I knew Joy Calkill, who was the artistic director. And she gave an indication that I would be encouraged to, um, to, to assistant direct or whatever, you know, that I could get some experience as, a, a, as a, somebody interested in directing. Because I did some directing when I was in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that, that really, um, knowing Joy, uh, I think that really influenced my decision to come back here. So I came back as a stage manager of the small... Um, uh, their small stage, their second stage, which they ran at the Seymour Street Arts Club, which is how I discovered that space. I see. Okay, so that space on Seymour Street was originally part of the Playhouse's second stage. Well, originally it was, um, I mean, the Arts Club started in 1958 as a club right. for people interested in the arts. It's a private club because the drinking uh, laws at that time were so restrictive. And then they moved to 1181 Seymour, Seymour and Davy. Uh, where they took over an old gospel hall, which had become a, like a car repair place. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of car repair repair places around that area at the time in the mid '60s, and so uh, Yvonne Ferkins, who is this remarkable woman, um, Joy Coghill is a very similar type of you know strong-willed mm-hmm. woman, determined to um, to start. Um, I don't think she really thought um, about starting a theater company, but she wanted to do plays. And as it turned out, <clears throat> the arts club itself, the club, could have the bottom floor, the main floor. And there was the second floor, which is where the cars actually drove in from the lane because of the way the land mm. goes, um, to be repaired. And so it had a cement floor. Um, being an old gospel hall, it had no pillars. And she then, um, she had been in England and discovered theater in the round. And so she um, put a bunch of chairs in in a circle and they did the play in the middle. Um, The first play was Light Up the Sky by Moss Hart. And uh, and that's how the the Arts Club Theater, as it were, uh, started. It, Mm -hmm. it, um, it, it shared the board with, uh, when I got involved, shared the board with, uh, with the club, which you know, eventually was an issue. But however, um, Yvonne passed away uh, two years later, mm. and then the Arts Club Theatre continued on with a, with a triumvirate of, of individuals who tried to pay the bills and, you know, kept going, um, mainly with light comedies. But um, uh, And then they rented out the, the theatre. And the Playhouse... Um, rented it for this stage two 
Uh, by the time I got there, it was maybe their second or third year, maybe their second year. Mm. Of, it might even be their first year, now that I think about it, mm. um, running a, a stage two, that they called it. Uh, yeah, at the Seymour Street Arts Club. So I was the stage manager. The first show I did was called Fortune of Men's Eyes. Mm. And um, uh, the, I had, uh, interestingly enough, when I was at UBC, uh, I may have ventured there once, um, but, you know, there was a real kind of attitude towards downtown theater, and mm-hmm. if they were just doing Neil Simon or Noel Coward, it didn't seem, you know, as somebody in their 20s, right. not something I particularly cared to, to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, really wasn't aware of this space until uh, I got involved in, in stage two. How did, you, how did shows get called there? Was there a booth? How did it work? Oh yeah, there was um, there was a uh, well, there was a backstage area, right? Um, right behind, um, there were like offices, and there was a kind of quasi dressing room, which um, was shared by, by in those days by both sexes, um, and um, and yeah, you just called it from behind the you know behind the wall. Yeah, there was a, a attic mm. um, above the offices, and that's where. It ended up, we had a costume shop, but the sets were also built there, or the sets were actually built right on stage right. Uh, in the early days. And, um, and the lighting guy, um, the, the lighting person, sat in sort of the, the edge of the attic and could see, see over down. Um, there was a staircase that went up, uh, <laughs> could see, you know, could see the action. And when I got involved, uh, in fact, even with stage Two, uh, because it was a, just an empty hall, um, you know, much like um, performance works, um, you know, we could move the seats around. So you could do thrust, you could do, well, in the round, obviously, yeah. or straight on, uh, much like Gold Corps ended up today. So, mm-hmm. uh, but you had to lug the, you know, the risers and all <laughs> the seats and, and, you know, there wasn't the same restrictions from fire law. So the seats didn't even need to be fastened down. Yeah. Gorilla Theater. That's right. Much. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> um, and then, so how, you got involved as a stage manager there, but how did you end up in the position that you're in there uh, <laughs> as artistic director or managing director? Uh, well, definitely evolved, evolved over right. time. So when, um, uh, so the first season, I'm trying to think of, um, so the first season I'm at the Playhouse. Uh, 68, 69, 69, um, that's right. So the, 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 the playlist was renting it. They did, I think they did four shows. Mm. They did maybe two or three, maybe, I, I don't know if they did four. Uh, and I stage managed two of them and then went back and, and worked at the playlist proper. Mm. Um, and then the arts club did a summer season. So, of course, the playoffs then had a traditional fall to spring season, and then everybody was laid off. So I went and applied, um, and because I knew, obviously, knew the people at the Arts Club by that time, and so they hired me as stage manager for their spring season. And then um, the next season, I produced with David Louis uh, an original review, which I helped write uh, with a woman called uh, Daphne Goldrick. It was a total flop. Um, but that, you know, that was quite the experience. Then the following summer, um, I think we're now 71, 
I worked at the Shaw Festival because Paxton Whitehead, who was the artistic director of, of the Playhouse, also ran the Shaw Festival. So I went there for a summer. And that was a great experience um, with a repertory company, classical-based uh, repertory company, um, and also being introduced to uh, actors, you know, Toronto-based actors, a whole different kind of ball game from what I was used to. And, and in the early days of the Playhouse, they brought a lot of people in. Um, there was a core of Vancouver actors mainly because of CBC Radio, mm-hmm. um, Bob Clothier and Peter Howarth, and well, Daphne Goldrick, Joy Colkill, um, but uh, a lot of actors were brought in. So I knew some of the actors from back east, but really working at Shaw Festival. Mm-hmm. And then in 1972, uh, so I'm still at the Playhouse, but this, I was at the Playhouse for four seasons. In 1972, David Louis came to me and said, um, uh, Leon Bibb had brought to him the rights to Jacques Brel's Alive and Well and Living in Paris. And, um, and, you know, David thought, you know, do you think we should, we could use the Arts Club for the summer? Um, and um, by then, I think stage two had stopped. And so I think, um, yeah, just backing up a bit, I think one of the spring times I was there, they let me direct a play. Um, the first play I directed was a flop. Uh, and then the next play was a hit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm batting 50-50. <laughs> and so I suggested to this, the, you know, the three people I ta- told you who were programming, there was mainly one guy who was fa- passionately, passionately interested in theater. Although he didn't work in theater, he actually was involved with a con- construction company. <laughs> that was his real job. But he loved theater. And um, I said, you know, I could help you pick plays because they were still pretty, you know, um, like comedies. And I mm. said, you know, you should try something different, a little more daring, a little more, you know, um, that might appeal to people of my age. And so I started selecting the plays. And, um, and he allowed me to do a season uh, while I was actually still working at the Playhouse. And the season was okay. It went all right. And it was a mixture. It wasn't just uh, Neil Simon or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, you know, I didn't have a, a, a title of any sort. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was pretending I was running it. And he was letting me make decisions. Um, and um, so when, when David Louis came about, uh, came with the idea of Jacques Brel, I said, yeah, I think absolutely we should do it. Uh, I knew the music, or at least I got to know the music. He wanted to have... Um, I didn't know Leon Bibb particularly, but he was suggesting Anne Mortify, who was really an up, up-and-coming uh, you know, musical talent at that time. Pat Rose, who was considered a, um, a bit of a name in Vancouver as a performer. And Ruth Nickel, who was um, unknown, but uh, I was very impressed with her because I directed um, a Mazhar production, a West Side Story, hmm. um, when I came back to Vancouver. So um, so we produced Jacques Brown, uh, sort of co-produced it with, uh, with David, and, uh, and of course it was this massive hit. And um, I think then um, it seemed, soon became clear that I, if I really wanted to have a career separate from just being a stage manager... Um, I had to had to leave, and I was sort of asked to leave uh, the playoffs because I wasn't right. really spending a lot of you know I was doing my job, but that was about <laughs> it. And um, so then in the fall of '72, I planned a season and started to direct more. 
and at the same time, um, Braille was paying the bills, uh, and that and, and really created a job for myself, as it were. And right. um, uh, I don't think I really started calling myself artistic director until um, um, you know towards the end of seventy two, seventy three, because um, it sounded a little pretentious, but. Um, <laughs> But that, yeah, so that's right. really, I just sort of talked my way into it, and, and there was no, nobody else was vying for it. It wasn't sure. like they put out an ad <laughs> saying we're about to hire an artist. We need director. somebody, yeah. That's right. How was your um, political science brain at that moment? Were you happy to leave it behind, or were you still considering other, other avenues, or you were hooked? Oh, I think I was leaving it behind, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I thought, always thought if this didn't work out, you know, you <laughs> There's always, right. you can go back to university or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, you know, my parents thought it was a, an odd choice, but, you know, they, they saw me go off to theater school and thought, well, if that's what he wants to do, that's what he wants to do. Mm. My dad really thought I should, um, you know, the television industry was just starting up in Vancouver at the time. He thought I really should get involved in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, you know, I was sort of committed to the theater and... Um, and as long as it, it kept paying the bills. And it was very, very fortunate. Um, Jacques Brel was clearly, um, mm-hmm. you know, obviously a, a great stroke of, of, um, uh, of luck for us to have this big hit with, mm-hmm. you know, 30,000 people came well. to see it who had never, ever stepped foot in the theater before. And it was very, you know, it, 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 at that time, that was a gritty part of town. Um, and so, you know, people were feeling like they were going off Broadway or, you know, somewhere exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had to go up these stairs and line up and there was no reserved seating or whatever. And these people were stars. I mean, Leon Bill was a major talent and Mordefi really became a star through that show. Um, Pat Rose and Ruth Nicole, you know, and then Brent Carver uh, came into the cast. You know, these were clearly outstanding talents in a very intimate space. So 200 seats, and um, you know it, it, it and the, and the Jacques Brel music and lyrics themselves, and it was also a real feeling in Vancouver of a change from um, being a frontier town to maybe we could be a little more sophisticated, becoming a little more sophisticated, hmm. and I think that uh, the first NDP government was elected. I think that. Um, with Dave Barrett, I think that whole kind of um, combination of events really changed the f- feel of the city right. uh, at that particular time. And um, Trudeau was prime minister, so you know there was a there was a real um, generational change. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so political science definitely uh, <laughs> faded into the background. <laughs> do you um, do you miss the Seymour space? Sometimes, or you that's it it was it had its time well, yes, of course you you miss it it was um, and it was an amazing space um, you know I, I tried to as much as possible recreate it in a very um, uh, you know two thousand and and um, sixteen way when we opened Gold Corp, mm. um, which is about the same size two hundred and forty seats and and with flexible seating. Um, but the thing about this space, I mean, Morris Panitch put it eloquently when he said, you know, theater spaces take years to, to have uh, all the performances breathe into the walls. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what the space felt like, even though really it wasn't that old. I mean, it, it started in 64 and, and it closed in 91. Um, but it was still, there was so much energy there, Jacques Brel, obviously, but Morris did a number of his premieres there, his first place, Seven Stories premiered there. So there's sort of, you know, as you say, the blood, sweat, and tears, as it were, that go into the space uh, was really strongly felt. However, I will say that um, one of the things that propelled us, or propelled me and then a bunch of my colleagues, to pursue coming to Granville Island was that we never owned um, the, the Arts Club Society, which I formed in 73 um, with its own board, uh, never owned the space, never owned the building. Um, they had an opportunity, the Arts Club had the opportunity to buy it, but they didn't. Mm. And, um, and so I think uh, pursuing Granville Island was because I knew, uh, I guess, uh, instinctively, that at some point we were going to lose it, that, um, you know, that we, 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 uh, we put in a bid to buy it and it was rejected and, and, um, and you know, of course we had no money. So, um, so I think in that way, the legacy of Seymour Street is the fact that the company changed and right. um, that we came to Grand Milan and clearly coming to Grand Milan, it was a major, major move. Um, we, we didn't leave Seymour Street, um, we continue to program it. Uh, Granville Island opened in 79, and as I say, Seymour closed in 91. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually, with the Seymour Street space, the owners, it had flipped a number of times during the 80s when real estate was going through what it's recently gone through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and it had been flipped a couple of times, and, and the, uh, uh, when the owner finally sold it in he was a friendly owner but then when he sold it to um offshore money we knew the uh, uh probably the you know handwriting was on the wall as were that mm. that it, and then so they wouldn't renew our lease and um so it was very difficult to program a season if you you know from month to month as it were so we made the we made the decision to uh to leave we probably could have stayed on a month-to-month basis Mm. Um, but the board um, and, and myself uh, felt that that was just, you know, you, you couldn't sell subscriptions based on not being able to deliver a season. And the building then came down a year or so later, but the land remained empty, right. <laughs> which was some kind of, um, you know, retribution, I think, <laughs> um, right. for like 10, 15 years, for quite a while yes, before I think they I actually developed it. Your strength, besides just directing and taking over the company, and I'm, I don't know, did, did you always have a business acumen? Was that something that you've always had? Um, well, I think it's, it's self-taught, um, or maybe being around my dad in, uh, in the fishing industry, which was, again, you know, a volatile industry. Uh, one summer, from one summer to the next, you didn't know what, how much fish was, you were going to can or sell or or whatever. Um, so I certainly had a risk, um, you know, management in my bones, I guess, because of him. Um, and no, I think, you know, it, it, it sort of is, um, I, I had some wonderful people, um, you know, working with me, uh, Ann Terrace, uh, who um, was a part-time accountant for the club when I, when I got involved. 
And her husband, Ken Terrace, uh, an architect, had helped design uh, the club itself mm. when they moved there. And she was a part-time accountant. And she was very interested in photography, so she had an artistic band herself. Um, she really was the, was the uh, you know, I mean, I could decide what, what I was going to do, but, um, you know, she was the one that, that probably um, impressed on me the need, the need to, you know, balance the books at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... Um, and I think that led to understanding that that programming uh, had to had to reflect that that you did knew, you needed a mixture of of works that um, could appeal, but at the same time uh, were, were you know finding plays that were challenging. And um, and I think it was fortunate that it was really the right time mm. in Vancouver for that to happen. Mm. Um, you know, to do new work by Michel Tremblay and David French and, and others, um, which had never been done in Vancouver before, uh, and eventually do new work, um, that kind of thing. So the business side of it sort of took care of itself. Mm. Um, uh, I, you know, probably because I was at one point interested in law, I um, turned out to, not, you know, to be an okay negotiator. So <laughs> that helped. Um, and also, you know, there was a real great sense of the little guy um, mm. compared to the playhouse, which was considered, you know, the rich, the rich, um, you know, cousin up the block, as it were. <laughs> um, they were much more heavily funded, so we were. Um, our first grant was very small, um, and um, you know, we were always lagging behind. Uh, and and you know, and then. Having a board of directors who are volunteers um, and some really wonderful people that that you know had a sense of, of balancing books and uh, able to if I if I had a question or I had some um, issue that I could discuss with them um, you know some brilliant uh, individuals uh, that we had as as chair chairpersons and and also um, you know the treasurer or the you know the finance person on the board. They were important because these were people who were interested in theater, clearly, but they had their regular job, um, and I could go to them and, and you know ask advice. So um, I don't, you know, it certainly wasn't that I was, you know, necessarily brilliant at, at the business side of it, but I had a lot of people that uh, that I could tap into. Why do you think the arts club is successful? I mean, that may be a larger question but <laughs> than, than you'd be able to answer. But what do you think in the early days, like when you decided to move to Gravel Island, that seemed like a very good choice at the time. Like, how did that all come about? Was it just timing? Um, well, a lot of people thought it was a, uh, uh, was a stupid choice because Gastown had been considered such a, such a hole that they thought Granville Island was going to be just the same. And, and this was people on our board. The board was actually split right down the middle mm. um, to do the move to Granville Island. And um, the chairman at the time um, voted to do it and, and broke, broke the tie. Um, Granville Island was, uh, it, it really started with my dad. He, um, um, by then the fishing industry had really changed uh, so this is um, um, sort of late 70s and um, he had where the hotel is now the Grand Hotel he had a little um, shack I guess you'd call it 
And um, he had sold, uh, sold the land uh, where the cannery was. He'd sold it to the fisheries department to become a fisheries research place. And, um, and, but he continued to run the company. Um, he, he had a fleet of um, you know, fisher people, that fishermen mainly, that, that would bring him the fish or, or packers that he knew. And um, and while he and and then he would outsource, of course, the canning of the fish. So um, and so he started to hear. He was also connected to the Liberals, Liberal Party, mm-hmm. and uh, the Federal Liberals, which is why I think he was able to to make the make the um, why he was so passionate about uh, the the cannery itself. Um, you know, uh, becoming uh, something he was very interested in. in Fisheries research, and um, you know, I mean, he he found it very difficult to deal with, you know, the depleting stocks and that kind of thing. Mm. So, um, so, anyways, he told me. Um, so I'm only, you know, just a few years into thinking I could do this job mm. um, at Seymour Street. He said, you know, the federal government is buying up leases on Granville Island, and he said, I think they're um, interested in in developing the land and um and i was trying to find a place to build our sets because we were we started to run almost year round um so we couldn't build the the uh you know the sets on stage anymore mm-hmm. and so he said you know there there's various warehouses that you probably could just squat in <laughs> and so he introduced me to the to the gentleman who was kind of dealing with buying up the leases and he said yeah why don't you use building whatever it was called, building 52 or something, which is where the shop is today, <laughs> still today. Amazing. And he said, yeah, just, just use it. Um, you know, you'll have to patch it up. You'll have to heat it. You'll have to, you know, we'll lease it to you for a dollar a year. Um, just squat there. And then another building came um, available, and he said, why don't you, because um, uh, I needed some offices for designers and the production manager. We had no room at Seymour Street said, oh, well, you can use that, which is now um, right across the street. Uh, it's used by one of the, you know, one of the, um, uh, the craft people down mm-hmm. here on the island. So anyways, uh, and then um, this development did take hold, and uh, a whole master plan um, that, that uh, Norm Hodson, um, Bacher Hodson architects were involved in, and they had this mixture that they wanted to see, and it included theaters, live performance spaces. Mm. And they uh, were open to, um, uh, they, they opened it up to a competition. So we entered, and, and this building, the Grandma's, that's now the Grandma on Stage, we um, targeted, which was an old um, chain and forge warehouse, and we targeted what was the review stage right across the lane. Um, uh, for a cabaret, and so we put in our put in our bid, mm-hmm. um, and um, uh, we were very fortunate to be granted the spaces, and that was really um, you know talk about transformative. Uh, suddenly, we've gone from this two hundred seat theater um, uh, into four hundred and fifty seats, and um, uh, we were very fortunate. In, and again, it was it was an era where there was lots of public money. Um, you know, we got at that time a huge amount, which was a million bucks from the feds, and the province matched it. 
Um, and then we raised the rest. And, yeah. and so that's how we got it. And that, and as I said, I think I was led to do this because, well, first of all, I had these people working with me that were earning nothing. And I was so afraid that I was going to lose them. Yeah. And these are very talented, mainly designers, but also actors. Yeah. You know, actors were starting to leave Vancouver to go to Toronto or, you know, like in Michael J. Fox's case, mm-hmm. go south to L.A. Um, so I was really conscious that um, if we were going to keep going as a company, we couldn't continue to exist in a 200-seat theater. We just couldn't pay enough. And um, so I was interested in, in, okay, let's see if we can get a bigger space in an old warehouse. Sounded, um, you know, sounded a bit like Mickey and Junie putting on a show. But um, so that, um, that again, I think was, was the major step forward in, in, uh, in changing the focus of the company. And, of course, you've moved to the offices have moved to the BMO space and you also through, through this dynamic, how did you get involved with the Stanley theater? It, Cause obviously it was sitting dormant for, for a while. And then was it industrial Alliance that, that came to you or did you decide that you wanted to redo that space? Um, well, it's another wonderful story and another, um, you know, in the, in the, in the evolution of the company, um, so we lost Seymour Studio in 91, and it, it became a, a kind of um, obsession of mine to replace it somewhere. Um, and so, you know, I would trot around town and look at, you know, empty spaces and could we lease that or could we buy that or what, you know. Um, so now we're down to, not down to, but we're <laughs> running the ground line stage and we're running the review stage. And... Um, and, you know, you would think, well, that's enough. Why, why? But the review stage was, was originally a cabaret. Right. And, um, but I really wanted a space devoted to, to new and, and edgier, experimental, whatever, work. And the review was very much more sort of you know, with a cabaret music reviews, um, you know, a form that I'm very, int- very interested in, um, focus. And um, theater sports, so the Stanley also closed in 91. And the city, um, uh, in their wisdom, uh, through a public campaign that, that was called Save the Stanley, um, then um, passed the bylaw, or whatever you would call it, that the uh, space could not be, uh, had to be maintained for um, public um, use. Mm. Because Gap, I think it was Gap, was interested in buying it and uh, turning to a store because of South Granville um, retail um, mm-hmm. focus, and um, and so the city um, agreed to save the stand. They didn't buy it or anything, but they forced the owners, which was Paramount Pictures, um, to look at if they did sell it, they had to sell it to. Or if they leased it, they had to lease it to somebody who, who um, would be operating it with the public interest. They could operate it as a movie theater, of course. Um, although I think there might have been a caveat about that, you, that it couldn't be run by a, uh, a theater chain that would be in competition with famous players, right. um, which was, the, which was the, the wing, the Canadian um, wing of Paramount Pictures that, that you know, exhibited films. 
Um, and theater sports, Vancouver Theater Sports League, started to look at it because they had lost their space mm. um, downtown. And um, so they needed a space, so they started to look at it. But, of course, this is a 700-seat movie theater <laughs> and uh, with no seats. And so they were not really interested in doing that. And I happened to run into Mark Speck, who was the uh, administrator there, and started to talk to her about it. And we started to fantasize whether we could twin it and theater sports would have the upstairs and we would have the downstairs. And my thought was we would move the cabaret to, um, to the Stanley and the review stage would then be converted into this Seymour Street type, um, you know, incubator for new work. Mm. Um, and so a Stanley Theatre Society was formed in the mid-90s. And we set out to buy it, and Stanley Theatre Society negotiated to purchase the theatre um, uh, from, from Paramount. And we had to borrow money, obviously, to do that, and embarked on a campaign to raise what was then $7 million dollars. To, to purchase and renovate it. doesn't sound like a lot, but it was <laughs> now, back then. <laughs> and um, the first bit of good luck is that Chrétien, um, you know, when he got elected, uh, introduced a kind of infrastructure program, uh, which we qualified for. Uh, so a third of the, the seven million could come from the feds. Um, we, got, we didn't get a matching from the province, but very close. So we then had two-thirds. Uh, we then were able to sell the air rights um, to the Wall Center. That helped to raise uh, a good portion of it. But by that time, the, um, the construction costs, plus including the purchase, had risen to over $9 million. Mm. And we only set out to raise $7 million. So it was decided that we would, before we started construction, um, or the design process that we would keep it as one theater and the arts club would run it and theater sports would on, on, a, on, a, you know, on, a, on a good basis rent the review stage. So the review stage became the theater sports home and, uh, and the arts club undertook to design and renovate um, uh, the Stanley Theater, which we opened in 98. So um, again... You know, setting out not necessarily to to have a theater that was 650 seats, <laughs> uh, and of course, at the end of the day, I still didn't have. <laughs> I had lost uh, the incubator stage, so I'd gained right. something and lost something else. else. Yeah. Um, so you know, yeah. eventually, um, when theater sports was able to get their space. Uh, on Granville Island here at the entrance to the island uh, they were able to get their own space so we took back the review stage in 2010 mm -hmm. and so finally I had <laughs> had this incubator space well I can't believe the Stanley it's 1998 yeah so it's already 20 years old this year I know yeah it seems sort of like yesterday in my mind that, it, that, that the campaign yeah. was happening that's yeah. so great um, how is Vancouver Theatre changed now from the time when you when you started at the arts club well f certainly from starting um 
when I first got involved with the Playhouse, uh, there was the Playhouse, there was the Arts Club, which had, had really basically, it, it started in 64. Um, this is now when I came back with 68. Uh, and there was a professional um, company at UBC and in the theatre department. Uh, it didn't last very long, but, but there were professional actors hired at, at UBC until really, I guess, when Brockington left and they changed their focus to have students in the, in the productions as opposed to professional actors. Mm. Um, and that, that, was, that was the ecology. The, there, were, there was the odd touring professional company like the Canadian Players, but um, uh, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't a regular thing. I think the 70s, really, like you mentioned it, was, was a, a time of extraordinary um, growth. Um, Tamanu's Theatre uh, was formed. Um, the the Vancouver Cultural Centre opened, I think, in 75, so that was major. Um, a number of young people's um, companies like Carousel and Green Thumb and Axis Theatre started up. So a, a, a real... Um, spurt of, of activity of people my age or, or younger uh, who came out of UBC and then Studio 58 of course started so there were those graduates um, and going into theatre was something that people thought that that's possible uh, to do the, the television and film industry started up um, so that that's helping actors stay in Vancouver and not consider leaving um, and I think that um, that early growth um, persisted right through until, I would think, the mid-'80s. And then it kind of leveled off uh, for a, a decade when um, things became tough. Um, you know, we lost time. And it was, oh, City Stage uh, started also in that time, the, mm. the Lunch Hour Theatre. Um, and there were other companies, you know, like co-ops and various things, and probably at some point the fringe started. Um, and Granville Island itself, um, because the Waterfront Theatre, which is Carousel used, the new play centre used, which, which also started up, and a company called West Coast Actors, which was classically based, uh, also was formed. And so it was a going concern at the Waterfront Theatre, plus ourselves. Um, and that kind of stabilized, as I say, into the 90s. And then about the mid-90s, we started groups like the Electric Company Theatre, Boca de Lupo, other more artist-driven companies started, um, Ruby Slippers, um, probably, you know, maybe predating that was, was some of the other companies like Pi, uh, Rumble, um, that kind of thing. And so there was another flurry. And now I think we see, um, uh, again, I think, Oh, and also um, Fire Hall mm-hmm. uh, Theatre Center opened, uh, and and Studio Sixteen. So there there are places for people that can perform. Performance work, performance works opens up. Um, so that that's very important for people being able to. Um, and and you know there was more money. Well, in the last ten years, I would say things again have leveled off. The money is, has has definitely um, not increased at the same level. Canada Council was frozen for a long time. The BC Arts Council has, has never really. Uh, I, I believe the current government is is putting more money into it, but we haven't really seen it yet. Um, so that kind of thing has has forced companies to do less. 
So instead of, um, oh, um, obviously Touchstone. Touchstone started, they probably, uh, you know, started in the early 80s uh, as well. Um, so those, those companies are just, you know, just um, getting by, as it were. Um, and, and then, of course, we lost the playoffs in 2012. So I think today it, it's, it's a time of, uh, there's lots of companies, mm-hmm. um, over 60, but it's a time of, um, of, of really assessing where we're at. I think the Arts Club, uh, and, and of course, Bard and the Beach started in the early 90s. So, um, and it's, it's you know, now well-established. So, um, so there's Bard and ourselves at, at a certain level, uh, of activity, and then there's a lot of companies in in not necessarily the mid level, but maybe lower mid, and then a lot of a lot of sort of co-ops and smaller companies and companies that find you know garages to perform in, um, uh, and so the the ecology may, maybe maybe needs to have one of those companies. Um, uh, like for a while, we thought Touchstone would be it in a kind of middle range. On the other hand, I don't think it's necessary as long as the you know as long as the opportunities are there for for people to do the work and and really a lot of it is supported by the film and television because the actors are able to to you know think of having a living mm, right. and then maybe do one or two plays um, a year. I think the the biggest threat is to the musical theater side because, depending on what Ashley Corcoran does here at the Arts Club, um, you know I obviously uh, push to do big musicals and and once the Stanley opened, uh, and try and encourage um, musical theater talent and and Cap College now has a really good program, um, and producing some excellent students. Um, but but keeping them here, that that I see a lot of them leaving, going back east, obviously where there's a lot of opportunity. But then there's a lot of young people coming up, mm-hmm. uh, and of course we can always you know bring bring talents back. So um, so that that uh, yeah, I mean that that's a bit of a concern of mine. But mm-hmm. but you know I I'm, I'm sure it'll sort itself out. Musicals or plays, which one do you do you like more? Uh, well, I did a lot of plays when I when I started. Um, didn't really think about doing musicals. Obviously, at Seymour Street, not being big enough, um, we we did some musical reviews. Um, but I never considered myself a particularly musical director. I, I'm not a choreographer, um, but uh, but you know I'm, I had a music background and, and interest in music. And then when we got uh, Granville Island. Um, I thought, well, maybe I'll try my hand at it, and um, started working with people like Bruce Kellett as a musical director, uh, and some extraordinary talents like Jeff Hislop, and I mentioned Ruth Nichol um, when we did Pippin, which was the first mm-hmm. musical we did here, um, and then carried on from there. And then, um, you know, I let encouraged others, uh, Dean Regan, who who mm-hmm. is a, a kind of a director choreographer. Uh, wonderful, and he, he created a lot of wonderful shows for us, Red Rock Diner and Black and Gold Review and such. Um, but then when we got to Stanley, and um, you really, it, 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 it started to, um, I, I started to get inspired by the theater itself, uh, built in 1930, uh, and look at some of the, you know, really classic musicals like My Fair Lady and, and West Side Story, 
and um, and then was very fortunate to um, to start working with Valerie Easton, um, who really Bruce um, sort of uh, promoted uh, me getting to know her because I had been working with others, and um, and it really was working with her and and how we got along that that I realized well, I don't, I'm, you know I'm not a choreographer and I don't have to be a choreographer as long as I understand um, you know what is the you know, what I'm looking for in, in actually staging a musical. And so I got very interested in it and started then doing less plays, partly because of the, of the challenge of actually running the company. Um, and even though by then we had a general manager, uh, it, um, I still had a lot of time, you know, I continued to do the negotiating and, and dealing with rights and that kind of thing and building the company up um, to be solid. So... Um, and musicals was a form that, you know, I could all do both jobs at the same mm. time directing. Whereas plays, you really, you know, you have to be totally 100% uh, mm. focused on the play. Um, I kind of miss that, but, um, but, you know, I did a lot of work um, at, at a time where, where that, that uh, made sense in the kind of uh, way the company was growing. I wouldn't say I would choose one o- uh, over the other, so... Um, I think there's something about um, a musical that that really, um, you know, can transport an audience of of all ages and all demographics in a way that a play can't necessarily. Um, and some of the great uh, experiences, like doing Miss Saigon or or Les Misérables or um, or even Once, which uh, which I just did this summer, that. Um, uh, you know, really does take an audience in in a, in a in a in a kind of different direction that I think is uh, uh, that's kind of neat to to watch. And I know you've uh, handed the company off. Um, of course, Ashley Quirkin has, has come in, um, but you're going to maintain an office here. Um, is it bittersweet? <laughs> Uh, well, I don't, I, you know, it, it's, yeah, because you know, um, once opened in, um, I stepped away officially from the job in the middle of May, um, actually started full time, um, end of February, beginning of March, and uh, I carried on um, while, you know, the transition um, that the board felt was necessary. And then a producer person was hired uh, the middle of May, which is when I really left. Um, and I've, I've spent some time since then really helping the producer person who's doing the negotiating and all that mm. admin side of it that I did, uh, that Ashley, um, you know, wisely uh, is not <laughs> going to do. Um, and so really the summer has been back and forth. It, it's been a kind of quasi-retirement, as it were, but... <laughs> Um, tonight, uh, or at least this date uh, of um, September twelfth, um, Ashley opens uh, her season. So that really is a is a good transition. And then um, you know I'm going to be away for a couple of weeks. Uh, so um, I think it'll be a much more of of an opportunity for me to really understand what retirement <laughs> means. It's great that the company has allowed me to have this office at Granville Island. Of course, they've dumped all the stuff from all my other various offices into it, <laughs> so I can barely open the door. So I'll spend a lot of time sorting through that because there's obviously a lot of stuff and memories and and you know literally paper that I should just shred. Um, 
So it's probably too early to know, you know, ask me in a year and I'll really be able to reflect on, on what it's like being given a lot of advice, mm. people telling me, you know, what you can expect in retirement um, or don't expect. Um, and um, and so it's, it's one of the interesting things, like, like somebody said to me, well, you know, you probably should focus on something. Um, you know, don't make a don't make a dramatic decision like you know, don't sell your house and move. Or you know, um, we have a place on Demon Island, so that's a great retreat uh, place to go. Uh, but um, I decided to um, relearn the piano. Yeah. So I was a pianist or a studied piano. Um, and um, at one point, you know, thought about uh, being a concert pianist. Uh, until my piano teacher was a well-regarded teacher and well-regarded um, a Vancouver pianist, you know, did a lot of sort of concerts in the city himself, uh, said to me, well, you know, Mr. Millard, I, I think um, I'm in university now. I think um, you will be an excellent piano teacher. Um, and so clearly I was not going to be a concert pianist. Uh, and and that was fine because you know now I'm at UBC and got other interests and um, so I really dropped it. Mm. Um, but obviously, you know, with with doing musicals and one thing or another, kept a very strong interest in music. Um, and occasionally, when I would you know be at home trying to figure out a score or whatever, I'd sit down at the piano and kind of pick away at at what it was. Um, but um, but anyways, I decided. Well, okay, I've got time. I'll, I'll start to, to play the piano. So I, I asked the musical director, Ken Cormier, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, how do I get back? How do I start again? I don't, you know, all the music I had before is gone. And, you know, basically I have very little. Mm. Uh, and so he told me about an exercise book that I should get. And so as it turns out, um, uh, somebody had already sent it to me, mm. thinking that, you know, if you're going to get back on the piano, this is what you should you, you should use. So, so I've started exercises um, at the piano and and um, sight reading, um, which you know I could sight read. So, um, but you know, suddenly sight reading, sitting at the piano, it it's um, it's great. Mm. So, um, so apart from that, you know, it it. Uh, I, I still haven't really gone into the rhythm of what it is like not to go to the office. Um, but, um, but every once in a while I get called up and say, well, can you come into a meeting or do this or that or the other? And I have to really think through the process yeah. of actually, oh, okay, I've got to put on a set of clothes and <laughs> go to work. <laughs> actually get there. Yeah, That's, yeah. So I was going to ask my last question was, what's next? But I guess uh, concert pianist is in your future, is it? <laughs> going to get back on the piano horse, as they say. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think travel. Travel. Um, I've always enjoyed traveling and um, seeing theater, you know, and, and wherever I go. Um, I have family. Um, my brother and his family live in, live, uh, in Waterloo, Kitchener, mm -hmm. so they're back east. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, and as I say, I mentioned the, the place on Demon. Um, it, it's amazing when you have time to read that you actually read. Mm -hmm. You know, I never read never read novels because mm. I read so many plays. Uh, and that was, a, that was quite, a, quite um, getting used to that every summer 
I would start reading all the plays in planning the next season. And so, you know, um, this summer I wasn't reading plays, mm -hmm. um, which, which, which was, uh, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it, um, you know, I, and I, and I thought of, um, what, one thing that somebody mentioned to me, um, well, John Wright, actually, um, you know, he, he got the career achievement award at the Jesse's and, um, we were talking and he said, you know, you would be the person to really um, write about um, theatre in Vancouver. I mean, there, there are others who are equally, if not more qualified. But having lived through it, you know, not necessarily the history of the Arts Club, but, you know, just like what we've talked about, mm -hmm. what, uh, you know, what has it been like f to see that growth in the 50 years, mm -hmm. the 50-plus years that... Um, the 60 years or, or whatever from when the playoffs started and, and really professional theatre became um, a reality in this community. And, and of course, um, you know, we've already lost some of the key players like Joy Calkill mm -hmm. um, without sitting down and, and hopefully maybe somebody interviewed her, I don't know. But looking into that, um, I, I, th I think would be uh, um, a, a good activity. What are you the most proud of? Um, when I think, first of all, uh, leaving a legacy of, of, of the buildings, a legacy of a company that's solid, um, handing over to Ashley, um, you know, it, it's on very, very strong footings. Um, she can dream, she can, she can you know, she, she can fail um, in, in, in whatever way. Um, I, I don't think she will, but, you know, giving her that opportunity to, to take risks. So the fact that the com company is on, on a solid footing. And then the, the facilities themselves. I mean, we own the Stanley Theatre. Um, uh, we do have a, a long-term lease here at the Grand Island stage, so hopefully we won't, uh, we'll be able to renew that. And, of course, we have a long-term lease at BMO. I think... You know, that was, because uh, honestly, I, I thought of retiring several times. Um, <laughs> and it was really the drive to, um, to uh, realize um, what the production manager, Stefan Bommel, said to me uh, five or six years ago. He said, you know, we need to, we need to move our costume shop. We, 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 you know, we're bursting at the seams in, in the shop building. Um, and so we first of all looked here at Granville Island, but also I wanted to find um, a large rehearsal hall. The rehearsal hall upstairs uh, here at Granville Island was never, never meant for the Stanley, of course, or big musicals. Uh, and, and it's extraordinary that we did some of the ones we did, like Les Mis with 24 <laughs> people uh, in that small space. And so combining that, um, as I say, we first looked at Granville Island and then... Um, uh, unfortunately, when the Playhouse um, closed, that opportunity came up to take over what was going to be their production center. Um, and although we had no intention, again, of moving the review stage, um, to what is now the Goldcorp stage, removing it, uh, when that became possible, um, that then cemented um, that what was a long-term dream of having a space that could be flexible, uh, and and do new work. So, I think um, the combination of the of the company, 
being in in a very good place plus uh, the facilities I think um, yeah I'm, I'm I'm proud that that, uh, that 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 is something that I'm I'm leaving for the future generations how do you know personally when a show is successful for you well financially it's pretty obvious um, <laughs> if you're selling tickets um, you know I think well success in 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 you know has many ways of of defining it. One is artistic, clearly. Mm. Is it success artistically? It could be a success artistically and nobody attends it. Mm. Um, that, that has nothing to do with its success from that point of view. Success commercially is, is um, or financially, you know, do we sell enough tickets is, is pretty straightforward. Mm. Um, but, you, but you can tell both things. Um, well, you, okay. You start with the play or the musical itself. Okay, so it's really difficult to muck up um, a successful musical like Mamma Mia that's you know, already proven itself to be a success. You'd really have to be determined <laughs> to destroy it. Mm. Um, so you know that, 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 I mean, obviously you want it to be a success in, in all levels, but the tunes are the tunes and, and people are going to jump up and down no matter what you do with them. Um, but then you have to make sure that you do honor the work. Um, you know, you can't be facile about it. Yes, you do have to make sure you've got the best people that you can get um, to, to bring that, that particular work to, to, to the stage. Artistically is a different thing, like particularly with new work. And how do you, how do you judge it being a success? So from an artistic point of view, really, for me, it's a gut reaction. It honestly is a, an instinctive going to see uh, a work for the first time and, and judging does it work for me, me personally. It might not work for the person sitting beside me or anybody else for that matter. But um, and and because it took me a long time to really understand what critics um, were looking at when they came and judged my work, um, and you know you can be very overly sensitive about what they were saying. Today, you know, we don't even have critics anymore. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, we have some. We have some wonderful people that that, despite all the odds, continue to write and broadcast and and blog and whatever and and I'm, I'm so grateful to them because the word has to get out there about work that people might not know about i mean the arts cup is a massive marketing machine so and that was something you know i didn't mention but in the early days um the daphne goldrick which i talked <laughs> about uh, we wrote this musical review that was a flop but she was a great mentor to me in many ways she was a, an actress that i uh met when I was the stage manager at the Playhouse. And she said, you know, one of the first people you should hire is a publicist. And so we hired Marlene Dixon, who really um, transformed the way we looked at um, making sure the world knew about plays at the Arts Club, because who knew about the Arts Club? Nobody. Mm-hmm. Well, until Jacques Brel came along. But, and then she could capitalize on that. And she was fierce in making sure, you know, she'd get much, as much free publicity as possible because we didn't have much money to advertise. Uh, so we could, if the show was good, and even if the critics poo-pooed it, we could overcome that if, you know, because eventually an audience would, 
would find it and make up their own minds. Um, but I think, you know, f- to, to answer your question, I think it's really, um, from my point of view, just an instinctive response. And, um, and, you know, over the years, I would go and see the first run uh, of, of, you know, of one of our productions and be able to give notes. And, and sometimes I would know that, um, mm, I don't think this is going to make it. Yeah. Uh, and other times I, uh, you would be able to say, you know, if you do this or you think about doing that, and depending on whether the director was open to those ideas, um, you know, and, and trusting in artists, you know, trusting that the artists that you hire are going to make the right choices, uh, I think is, is, um, is, you know, a large part of, of making sure that you're going to get what you want on stage. And do you think that that's your strength? I think it's one of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think, and also people used to say that uh, I had a really good eye for casting, oh. that um, I'm a real believer in warmth on stage, mm. and... Um, and so again, uh, an actor coming into an audition, if I felt something from them, uh, I didn't need to know much about them. I mean, you know, some directors spend a lot of time trying to get to know the actor. That to me was not important. I didn't need to necessarily know who they were. But if they uh, struck me as, as somebody who had warmth, um, then, then, you know, again... Casting them, to me, was, was a major part of making sure this show was going to be a success. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for jo- joining me today, Bill. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my talk with Bill Millard. If you enjoyed this chat, please listen to more From the Pit podcasts, available on iTunes or at fromthepitpodcast.com. We're also looking for sponsorships. If you want to sponsor us or know someone who does, please contact us through our website or on our Facebook page so we can continue to bring you more episodes.